Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast where a couple pastor scholars get together and dig into a seasonally appropriate scripture passage that we hope will be enjoyable and edifying and equipping for those who are studying the Word of God and especially those who might be preaching or teaching on these texts this Sunday or some upcoming time. I am your host, John Drury. I teach systematic theology and spiritual formation for Wesley Seminary, Indiana Wesleyan University. My guest this week is Ken Shank. Ken is a frequent guest on the podcast here. He is the Vice President for Enrollment and Innovation at Houghton College in upstate New York and a longtime uh, friend and colleague and uh, leader and teacher of mine. So I'm deeply thankful for him if there's ever been, if I've ever said uh, anything of any worth on any of these uh, podcasts, it's uh, certainly because of skills that I, I learned sitting at his feet as a student uh, years ago and, and, and ongoingly these last few decades. So I'm so thankful to have him back on the show. He's the author of, oh, well over a dozen books. So uh, check those out. Uh, pick up a copy of um, one of his books when you get a chance. And uh, our text this week is Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 7 through 14. Jeremiah 31, verses 7 through 14. Be sure to rate and review the show as well as subscribe and share and get the word out. With that said, enjoy the show. Awesome. Jeremiah 31, 7 through 14. And this is for the, the second Sunday after Christmas. So right before Epiphany. So it's kind of, and we switched. Uh, so we're in year A. And after spending a year in the, uh, the gospel lesson, I thought it would be good for us to transition into Old Testament readings. Sure. Um, for a season. I'm not sure how long. I haven't really thought that far ahead. That's not yeah. how Fresh Text works. <laughs> So we're usually just a couple months ahead at most, but so awesome. Uh, do you want to read or you want to pray after I read your choice? Doesn't matter. So seven through what? 14? Uh, 31, seven through 14. I can read. Yeah, you read. I'll pray. Sounds good. Go for it. All right. So Jeremiah 31, seven through 14, reading from the NRSV. For thus says the Lord, sing aloud with gladness for Jacob. Raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise, and say, Save, O Lord, your people, the remnant of Israel. See, I am going to bring them from the land of the north and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth, among them the blind and the lame, those with child, those with la in labor, together in a great company. They shall return here. With weeping they shall come, and with consolations I will lead them back. I will let them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I have become a father to Israel, and Ephraim my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather him, and will keep him as a shepherd, a flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob, and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. 
Their life shall become like a watered garden, and they shall never languish again. Then shall the young woman rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will give the priests their fill of fatness, and my people shall be satisfied with my bounty, says the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we ask you to whom all hearts are open and all desires known, that you would cleanse the thoughts of all our hearts, both Ken and I, as well as all those who are listening in across time and space, that our hearts may be purified by your spirit, that we may hear not merely the letter, but the spirit of the word of God that you have declared and has been preserved and handed on to us. Lord, we ask that we would be pure hearers of the word of God so that in turn we may be purified and purifying bearers of the word of God for the sake of others. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who is your living and eternal word, with whom you and the Holy Spirit be all honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Yeah, so on this uh, otherwise bustling day of yours, what, uh, what immediately jumps out at you when you uh, revisit this passage afresh today, Ken? Well, it's a wonderful passage. Um, and, uh, of course, looks to a time beyond the present of Jeremiah, Jeremiah would would not experience this uh, personally uh, in his li- in his lifetime, but the the promise of of God's restoration that God always prevails. Sometimes we're not part of the prevailing. Um, sometimes yeah. it happens after we have passed from the scene, but the Lord will prevail. Victory will be for the people of of God, and not. Not in a um, material way, but in a um, in a, a redemptive, salvific uh, kind of kind of way. Some great, great verses in there. Those are just my first, some of my first thoughts. Yeah, responding to that, I it, it strikes me like when we're reading uh, prophetic texts, there's always kind of the possibility of a nearer and and more distant meaning. And, but having said that, sometimes the nearer meaning requires a distant reading. Do you know what I mean? So like the the more distant reading is not always a jump to allegorical interpretation or a jump to the New Testament automatically. Sometimes the more distant meaning is just what's called for. As you said, I mean, Jeremiah is this weeping prophet at the time of exile even well, he has that scene where it doesn't need travel for a little while down to Egypt. Like he's, he's even yeah. hanging around the crew that's trying to survive <laughs> and yeah. uh, warning them against their survival tactics. I mean, he is not, he's almost pro exile in a weird kind of way. You know? yeah. And, and, and so for him to be talking this way is already point, even, even the most kind of imminent immediate kind of fulfillment here. Uh, 70 years is, away is already a whole generation away. Exactly. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to say. So, yeah, I mean, that great thing, know the thoughts I have for you, you know, from Jeremiah 29, 11 <laughs> right. is, is 
the people who he's writing that to will be dead before that comes to pass. Exactly. Yeah, because even in the context, it's talking about, hey, settle in. Yeah, by property. To the exile, it's kind of the, yeah, it's, and so it's already, there's already a step between him and those exiles who will, even those who will obey the, the command are one step removed, at least in space from him. And then, because he's obviously not telling the Egyptian exiles to settle in, but obviously those who experience the promise are even further out. And it's a, it's important contrast with, I mean, there's a lot of material in Isaiah, for instance, where the sort of uh, rendering kind of explicit Christian meanings is a second step. There, there's clearly like a near historical fulfillment that's being foreseen by the author. And this is one of the, this is one of those passages in Jeremiah where I don't think that is the case. There's also there's similar passages later in Isaiah, but I mean, back in the Advent season, I mean, quite a few of those texts had kind of a a pretty clear immediate meaning at the time, you know, uh, and then possible second layers after exile, and then possible third layers in the Christ event, and fifth layer, you know, fourth and fifth layers yeah. when you finally get to our own kind of eschaton or something so, so it's like whereas this one just says straight out this is not something he's not talking about something that's happening you know tomorrow <laughs> I've, I've you know i've often said uh in various contexts that i would much rather be called to be a prophet in the days of isaiah than in the days of of jeremiah you know isaiah's message is uh ahaz don't worry about it god's gonna take care of it don't hmm. don't seek foreign aid. You're, it's going to work out, you know. And then Jeremiah's is it's we're doomed. We're doomed, <laughs> you know. Um, don't hope for rescue. It's not going to happen, you know. <laughs> but well, um, that's a fun that's a fun thought experiment, though. I mean, for for all our listeners to think <clears throat> because that that could be a uh, uh, there could be a personality element to that. Do you know what I mean? I think some of us might be a little bit. I, I, for the sake of uh, uh, just as a thought experiment, I, I wonder if I'm actually wired the other direction. <laughs> which which way? Maybe more times Jeremiah to oh. just be like, yeah. I don't know if I, I wouldn't want to have the responsibility of people listening to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and of course, go ahead. No, that's all. <laughs> but you know, in a way, um, Isaiah 40, in my, in my opinion, Isaiah 40 and Jeremiah 31 here are both yeah. in the near referring to the same basic yes. event. I mean, the temptation, I think, of my grandfather uh, would have been, who was a prophecy, he had the, the long mm-hmm. uh, a map of, of human history that he would go around pre- teaching in churches. You know, I think the tendency of his generation was to see this gathering as the restoration of Israel in the end times. Right. You know, right. But that's not, now maybe that's a, a two or three rocks down skips, you know, skips on the pond of prophecy down the, you know, maybe that is a, but that's not what he's, I don't think prophesying in, in the, in the immediate uh, future. He's talking about Israel returning from Babylon um, after, uh, after their captivity, I think. Yeah. Well, let's go through some of the details and see how it fits into that reading which would be my uh, operate that was my operating assumption too is that this is an exile a return from exile um it's, it's kind so. of like when 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 prophet when prophecy teachers you know left behind and and so forth talk about uh the temple will be destroyed or the temple or i'm sorry the temple will be rebuilt 
um, you know, I always say, well, you realize it's already been rebuilt. Uh, it was right. rebuilt in 516 BC. So, you know, you, 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 you don't realize how far removed you are from this, this yep. text in history. Yeah. And the, the new Testament texts that seem to be coping with the fact of that second temple's destruction don't seem to anticipate a rebuilding in the same sense that there is a, I mean, actually there's actually quite explicitly like in revelation, there is no temple, right? The right. lamb is the temple, right? So the, there's these kind of, or the heavenly temple imagery from Hebrews, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but yeah. there is a kind of, it's not a given that, that that's a kind of, the, the irony is when you realize that there was a rebuilding of the temple in history, you actually can run the risk of when we do those kinds of eschatological projections, you can actually run the risk of accidentally not doing eschatology at all as not the end, but you end up falling accidentally into this kind of eternal recurrence. Cause it's like, if God promised to rebuild the temple and that already happened once, now you're telling me, you know, that it's going to rebuild again. Well, isn't that just one more historical event that can also then be defeated? And then now we'll do it again and again, yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and, and you run, yeah, you really run headlong into actually the very opposite direction of what, eschatology is all about which is the last yeah, things yeah. <laughs> i don't know if that that's a helpful uh thing to keep in mind but uh yeah i mean the language of i mean right out of the gate in verse seven you know sing and shout for jacob and the chief of the nations i'll pause right there and is the chief of the nations even though it stands in parallel to jacob there i wasn't sure if that passage if that phrase is trying to suggest a contrast like the chief of the nations being being Babylon here that's being defeated and you're shouting over them. I don't know. It might not be, there might not be a clear way to do that. Um, yeah. So is it, is it synonymous or antithetical parallelism? Exactly. Right. Yeah. And we wouldn't have to decide on that one, but the NRSV went for synonymous, but yeah. Do you have but, a version uh, that goes for uh, antithetical? NASB at least leaves it ambiguous, which is their pr- preference to undermine good poetic style uh, in order to yeah. leave room for study, which is why I like it as a study Bible. But, yeah. so it, but and, NASB and, is a, as a real bore from the pulpit because it has no, it's just no life. It's such a dead. <laughs> and for those of you who don't know Hebrew, the word the can be yeah, and just, or but. Yeah, right. Absolutely. So there's no, there's not a, a grammatical no solution. Gun. Yeah, the no smoke. Oh, nice. Good phrase. Yeah, so it goes a shout among the chief of the nations. Um, okay. Because obviously, if it's, if it's synonymous, uh, if, if Jacob and chief of the nations is synonymous, then the phrase chief of the nations is ironic. <laughs> yeah. Because Israel is, is only chief by God's election and, and by promise, uh, not yeah. by any sort of obvious empirical standard. Right. So proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, save your people the remnant of Israel. So even that remnant language immediately yeah. has its, has the ex- exile. That's an exile term yeah. right? in its original yeah. context. And then eight is very striking. Behold, I am bringing them from the North country, right? Well, even though Babylon is, yeah, I think, do, it's about due East. Right? No, it's a little, well, the, the problem is, but you have desert, to go North to get there, right? Yeah, you have to the go desert, North to get there, right? The desert's in the way. So if you come from Babylon, you end up coming from the North. Right, just like Egypt's to the south, even though it's yeah. south and east, excuse me, south and west. And gathering from the remote parts of the earth. Now, that's a little more suggestive. And then this language here, which gets us into some interesting 
language that appears also in Isaiah and is important in the gospel, but we won't jump to that right away. But among them, the blind and the lame, a woman with child and she who is in labor with child together, a great company, they will return here. In terms of the imagery here, is this, uh, what, what do you think this is trying to suggest? Like every, like all kinds of people coming back? Is that, is that the? Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I don't know for sure. I mean, my thoughts are everybody's coming and I also, when I saw the blind and the lame, I mean, my first thought was uh, Israel's been a little beat up. Um, yeah. Uh, I don't know if that's what the, the text is hmm. invoking, but, but you know, Israel's not, uh, it's seen better days, you know. It's, it's uh, cross-country days in high school. Those were a long, that was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, those with child and, the, and same there, right? Already, th- there's a kind of agedness and experience, right? Although when maybe hope as well. True. Those with child, but they're in labor. They're in labor, so they're suffering. Yeah, but with hope, a great company, they will return here, right? And that sort of very strong, I'm comparing with yours real quick. I I have yours out too. Yeah, same. Great company shall return here. And this kind of, I mean, it's interesting. These are not the blind will see and the lame will walk, right? So it's just... Uh, I don't know. We might have to come back to that, but, and that, that, fit, oh, actually nine helps with that a little, right? The with weeping. Yeah. But with constellations, I will lead them back. So there's kind of a, oh, the whole thing here, right? I'll make them walk by streams of water on a straight path on which they will not stumble. It reminds me of Isaiah 40. Oh yeah, or straight, the rough places plain, and also Hosea eleven, right? Ephraim was a child. I took them by the hand, led my son um, out of Egypt. Yeah, yeah. So this idea of leading them back, and there's pain, there's weeping, but there's also some consolation and guidance. God bringing them back. The imagery here is all very actually up to this point. There's nothing. Um encouraging no 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 no. i was gonna say nothing uh supernatural on the surface i got stuck because i wanted to not i didn't want to deny the supernatural at work but this is a you know what i mean this this is all this this could all be this could all have had a quite straightforward literal fulfillment in bc 536 right right um there's nothing about this that has to i mean obviously there's symbolism and imagery here but it doesn't you don't have to run to that, at least for the opening couple verses. It's all pretty straight. Boy, and I don't know. It kind of it really stays that way. I mean, I mean, I even straight path that stumble is not. I don't know if it's literally saying you know, no one will trip on the journey back. Oh, no, I, I doubt that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now the, the imagery. Way, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no. Um, this is such a great uh, chapter. Um, I'm looking a little beyond our verse. Oh, I know. The whole thing is amazing. <laughs> um, so a, a voice is heard in Rama, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children. Of course, that's that's a passage that Matthew relates to yes. uh, the killing of the children in Bethlehem. But in its original context, it's about the obliteration of the northern kingdom. Yeah. Um, because uh, Rachel is, I believe, um, well, Ephraim's grandmother. But um, so her children, the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, yeah, has been destroyed. 
Oh, and it keeps, uh, and I mean, if we're just going to talk, then you get the new covenant material, right? Towards yep, the- and then I'm making a new covenant. I'm bringing it, bringing them back. Also, uh, and again, I'm sorry, I'm getting out of out of line here. But I suppose we want no, to do it. Do it. Point. I don't care. Um, yeah, go for it. Uh, there's there's also a change. Um, now it's not it's not a absolute change, but this is a great chapter for a change from collective guilt to individual guilt as well. Yeah, because there's a saying going around: our fathers ate the sour grapes, but it's our teeth that hurt. Yeah, the Lord says. No longer will the children of those who's, who eat the sour grapes going to hurt, but the soul that sins, it's going to die. The person that does the wrong is the one who will be punished. Um, so there, there's kind of um, changes. Uh, I don't know whether we can call them eschatological, but there, there are really significant uh, theological shifts uh, in how God is dealing with Israel in, in, this, in this chapter. Anyway, I got, I got ahead of ourselves. Well, no, no, that's actually good to tie in. I mean, that, that's, that is down in verses 29 and 30, but um, it connects, though. I think that shift is not, though it, it may have general application. I think it, it had, bears direct relationship to the original exilic context of this passage, right? Because the experience of exile is precisely an instance of uh, the whole community suffering for the sins of its leaders and fathers, right? Yeah. Um, so it's not denying that that principle of communal and generational guilt is n- is never operative. It's actually a sort of a, it's a change that confirms the original paradigm. It's saying, yeah, that's exactly how I worked, but I'm done. I'm, it might be God sort of implying I'm done playing that game. Now this exile was kind of the last of this great sort of communal event. And now I want and an invitation to stop interpreting events that way and to just own your own personal responsibility, which is a fascinating sort of thought and what, what it means to kind of affirm because there's no, there's no implication here. Oh, you know, God never dealt with pe- his people that way. I mean, the whole Old Testament narrative makes no sense if you, right. if you abandon <laughs> the notion of communal guilt, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, but this, is a, this is a crucial <clears throat> limit, you know, just like the book of Job places a limit on the Deuteronomistic view of Proverbs, and, right? Uh, or like Job and Ecclesiastes kind of set some yeah. limits on Deuteronomy and Proverbs and the impression they might give. In a similar way, Jeremiah 31 here, is setting setting a crucial kind of limiter on the the dominant theme of the you know the the first and second kings and Isaiah yep. and all the prophets right is that is that some and, tracking and Eze- or not yeah and Ezekiel eighteen will go into great depth on this you know no longer if the father if the father sins the son's not going to die if the son sins right. the father you know, I mean uh, Ezekiel eighteen uh, is a, a very well, very significant to me theologically and 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 it is you know it it's it's not when i say it's not absolute because we still find the new testament wrestling with these you know in john yeah who sinned yeah. this guy or his or his parents you know so it's not like jeremiah uh, uh 31 and ezekiel 18 ended the discussion on on corporate sin you know the sins of the father are will be passed on to the son i'm not quite sure how to integrate all that yeah, neither am I. But in my but well, in my in my theology, 
you know, God has no grandchildren, as they say. Um, in my theology, I am accountable before the Lord uh, for my own uh, spiritual choices, for lack of a better word. Not for my, my parents were great. Uh, in many respects, I wish that I, my eternal destiny, <laughs> you know, was based upon my, my parents. <laughs> but, um, but it's not. And Ezekiel and, and Jeremiah, I think, uh, indicate that pretty straightforwardly. Yeah, oh, well, that's that's good, and and those theological questions. I th- let's take a break there and come back and 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 go more deeply into that. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm your host John Drury, and I'm here with Ken Shank, uh, who's one of my favorite regular guests. Now, I, this might be your I don't know fourth time, third time, maybe. Yeah, fourth. Love having you on. Love having you on. So we're looking at Jeremiah 31 verses 7 through 14, but we're really jumping around over the kind of the whole chapter, which is great. We've been doing that a lot, especially the Old Testament lessons in the lectionary are often these little vignettes and you don't get the rest of the chapter anywhere else in the lectionary. So you might as well jump into it. It says nothing. Although I would, I would think the lectionary would look at the later part of this chapter because it's in Hebrews, but I could be wrong. I was actually surprised. I was surprised. Yeah. It may come up at another spot. I didn't do a full blown search, but, uh, but uh, the language here, I think, is intentionally kind of being associated with the, the as the kind of the, the waiting and hoping of the Advent texts, mostly right. from Isaiah, kind of find a really powerful uh, kind of rejoicing and fulfillment uh, here in, in this in a passage uh, like Isaiah um, 31. And, and actually the, the transition from weeping to mourning, which seems to be really uh, important in this passage and actually makes me think a little of the, just to connect with your earlier question about the, the individual and the corporate. Um, I, I don't know if the, this is maybe getting too in the weeds, but hey, it's fun. Uh, is there any loose, uh, is the transition from, at least historically and literarily in your understanding, is the transition from prophetic to apocalyptic, which is obviously not a rigid, you know, thing. Does that have any loose uh, correspondence to a shift from corporate to individual? You would think there, there, there seems at least to me as a non-expert, there seem to be natural <laughs> resonances there. Do you know what I mean? Like, the, in, in that, in that, the are you arguing that the apocalyptic is more individual, or well, at least that the accent can? I mean, it's more the other way around. It's that the prophetic is just by very its nature, it's talking about the destiny of this nation, right? It tends to be very this worldly and communal in its orientation. So it's more, it's more that that correlation seems clear to me, such that a shift to an apocalyptic and the possibility of a kind of um, final judgment, right, and a resurrected body has a kind of, at least leaves more of an opening for an individualizing. So I'm not saying it's only individual. I'm saying it, it opens that door a little bit. I don't know. Does I, do, that, I, I do think that there's a shift between um, a prophetic being a more cyclical, uh, although although prophetic uh-huh. uses prophetic uses what sounds to us like linear language. Right, like they will never languish again here, right? Yeah. Like as if so, it's done, right? Uh, in fact, again, I don't want to, I don't want to, these okay things that Ken thinks when nobody's talking to him. 
Well, that's uh, for the middle section of the podcast. You're allowed to just, you know, it's all, it's all, it's public, but off the record. <laughs> so uh, I'll put it, I'll put it this way. I wonder if God used linear sounded sounding prophetic language to uh, catalyze apocalyptic uh, thinking. Ah. Um, and here, of course, going with Ernst Kazeman's sense that, that um, apocalyptic was the kind of mother of, or, uh, or the, what I miss, I'm, for, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting exactly what it's Apocalyptic's the mother of theology. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that Christianity is fundamentally um, linear in its view. However, I don't, I don't actually think that the prophetic language was truly linear yeah. in its original okay. context. It sounds linear, but it was all metaphorical. And then later on um, in the, in the lead up to Christianity, that that um, linear metaphor was taken literally uh, by the apocalypticists. That's not really what you were asking, but no, actually, it's precisely. Let's stay with that because it'll come back around. Because no, no, I think that that's a that's a that's a perfect sort of indirect answer to my question. I think it confirms my hunch only in so far as the cyclical and the communal are natural partners <laughs> right. and the linear and the individual are natural. I mean, in the sense of a linear, because linear also has to do with the punctiliar beginning and end of my life. Right. right? Yeah. I die and then I have a final judgment. Right. And that kind of framework is not, I'm not saying it's individualistic in the sense yeah. of a, yeah. a reduction to the individual. The individual is all that matters. Obviously apocalyptic doesn't work that way, but, but the, uh, the, the sort of individual responsibility before God and to answer for one's own life rather than everybody else's, well, that, that, that seems to fit a kind of more linear notion of time and therefore a, certain, a more kind of apocalyptic eschatology. So I think there's a and correlation there. The rise of resurrection thinking is to be Absolutely. found with apocalyptic. Yeah, and, those, and, that correspond, and in a way, all of the things that we're saying are dancing around the 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 basic shift from a metaphorical to a literal notion, or I'll say metaphorical to a uh, corporeal notion of resurrection, because even the resurrection language in the Old Testament was originally usually intended as a metaphor for exile, return, right? Like right? Ezekiel thirty, even Ezekiel thirty seven, right? You know, we read it and we think, well, of course, whoa, <laughs> but right. in its original oh. context, it's about the the restoration of Israel, but per your kind of canonical reading as a whole is to say that these kinds of more linear or, or final imagery can have opens the door for this development then. So then you don't, so then we're not narrating apocalyptic as some kind of uh, corruption of original prophetic vision, but it's fulfillment or it's development, a legitimate development, uh, confirmed by certain Christian claims about resurrection that kind of, and, and classical Jew, Jew, Jewish claims as well. And for those of you who don't know what we're talking about, I mean, uh, <laughs> apocalyptic is, you know, uh, we can argue some of the edges of this, but apocalyptic is generally an intertestamental uh, yeah. development within Judaism rather than an, an old Testament. Uh, although you get right. the edges of it in Daniel and, and um, Zechariah and so forth. Yes. You have some of the anticipations in, in the Hebrew Bible, and then, and then you have full-blown apocalyptic up and running in a book like the Apocalypse of John, the last book of the New Testament, right? So, I mean, you get these apocalyptic writings uh, in the New Testament, or Mark 13, Jesus' 
description of events to come. And think um, mushroom clouds, you know, at the end yeah, of history. Kablooey, right, right, right. But as you said, there was imagery in the prophets that, because like I said, it's not a rigid distinction. There are these transitional images and specifically return from exile. Im- the, the event of the anticipated return of exile occasioned a certain kind of prophetic poetry yeah. that lends itself to a more apocalyptic mode. And you actually see that in, and that's why we're not off topic because you can see it in this very passage. So I went, we, before we kind of went verse by verse seven through nine, when you start from 10 on, you could take this in a more apocalyptic direction. I don't think that's the original intent, but you could take it that way. I mean, hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare in the coastlands afar off. Which, of course, is right? about the United States. <laughs> no, but, but, but I mean, you hear it where, of course, that's just that meaning. a joke for those of you listening. Right, no, no, I know. But I mean, in the initial, it's just saying, hey, yeah, because Babylon's far away. But, but, uh, but, you know, he who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. So the Im- it's getting a little bit more, considerably more metaphorical now. The Lord has ransomed Jacob and redeemed him from the hand of him who was stronger than he. I mean, that sound, I mean, it does not take that much of an apocalyptic imagination to hear the devil there rather than just another nation, right? Obviously, Babylon's stronger than Israel and Judah in particular, right? But I mean, redeemed him from the hand. You know, I mean, you, you can see, you know, after a couple hundred years of reading these yeah. texts to start hearing this as Israel feels the oppression being under the boot of the Greeks and the Romans and, and, and immediately thinking, well, this isn't just about Babylon and Rome and Greece. This is about Satan. Right? Right? Yeah, well, Mark, you, <laughs> nobody, nobody raids a house unless they tie up the Bingo. strong man. Exactly. Exactly. They will come and shout for joy on the height of Zion. They'll be radiant over the bounty of the earth, right? It's getting very, the imagery is getting really strong here now. Over the grain and the new wine and the oil, over the young of the flock and the herd, and their life will be a watered garden, and they will never languish again. I mean, that sounds final. Again, I think right. Jeremiah, original context, this is, this is metaphorical exuberance, but, yeah. but it and sounds final, sounds linear, like to use your language of linear. Yeah, I don't want to, I want to, I don't want to, you know, die for anything I say, but, but my sense is, is that, <laughs> that the, the prophets use this kind of, uh, you know, we do, we do it occasionally. I'll never forget. Well, what if you get Alzheimer's? <laughs> right. Come on. That's not, I mean, it's, it's not what kind I mean. of language. Yes. And, and of course, uh, GB cared argued a long time ago, you know, the sun will be mar- darkened and the moon turned to blood. Um, that that language is like, this is an earth shattering event. Oh, really? Right. Did you feel tremors? Right. No, I mean, that's, a, it's a, it's a, it's a way of speaking. Um, anyway, pluck your eye yes. out, you know, if your right eye offends you, you know, Right. It's one of these things where we, uh, it's, it's a lot easier to see the, the excess of language in a unfamiliar language. Right. Language seems so full of excess, you know? Uh, but then when you actually pause and think about your own language, you know, you start to realize how ridiculous so much of what we say is, you know? Yeah, I say, I've um, always thought, well, have you really, when you were, <laughs> right, born, right, 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 right. You know? <laughs> I, I, thought, I caught myself saying that the other day about something that I've only thought for a few months. You know, yeah. I thought, no, that's not right. 
Yeah. And I, I, I mean, even these little, now I'm just getting silly, but a couple of philosophers here, what do you expect? Right. I mean, I caught myself saying like, yeah. Even that is just a bizarre little yeah. turn of phrase. But I mean, this is the the excess of language is its beauty though, right? It's just yeah. so, it's Human. so potent. Yeah. And it's what gives it liveliness. That's what I'm, when I both compliment and criticize the NASB for leaving a lot of interpretive questions unanswered, that's what makes it a really great study Bible, but also just makes it really dead because it just kind of takes the life out of it, you know, because, um, language is just drives towards concreteness you know but that requires well, making decisions yeah. you know making a choice you know because you you could change this language and make it you know safer and that's always that's a tough question in translation like do you do you translate do you turn like an image into its abstract meaning which makes the text maybe easier to understand and less offensive and less susceptible to mis- misunderstanding, but then in the process kind of lose all the liveliness of it. Do you know what I mean? Their life shall become like a watered garden. I mean, they're, they're, we could turn that into an abstract yeah. statement, you know. Uh, well, it's like the trees will clap their hands. What is the literal, what is that <laughs> literally, you know, it'll be really great. I mean, that's about what, I mean, I've tried to, I, in class, you know, talking about metaphor and how there's nothing wrong with saying there's, non-literal things in the Bible um, to make the trees will clap their hands into something non-literal would be, I mean, I don't even know I can do it. The rocks will shout, you know? Well, you, uh, I remember you taught me a long time ago. Yeah. Sometimes the Bible, yeah, I believe the Bible is literary, literally true. And the Bible sometimes uh, that's literally a metaphor, right? Like that literally in the sense of the literal meaning, the literary meaning, right? The letter, what the letters say, right? And I think the, you would know better than I, I think the reformers talked about the plain sense of scripture um, because sometimes mm-hmm. the plain sense of scripture is not literal. That's correct. That's a, that's a good census plenior. Yeah. The plain sense. Yeah. Oh, actually census plenior is the, the full meaning. The fuller that, sense. Yeah. What's uh, What is plain? I don't remember. I don't, I don't in, know. Uh, in, in Latin. I don't remember. doesn't matter. Uh, <laughs> Then I'll, the, the young women rejoice in the dance, the young men and the old. I'll turn their mourning into joy and comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. So this exchange, this transition, and we had it at the beginning of the passage where they're coming home uh, weeping. Yes. You know, and, and in but, pregnant and in labor. Yeah. But then it, that mourning becomes joy. Uh, that gladness, that sorrow becomes gladness. That's that transition, that shift that's awaiting. Yeah. Which then the doubles priest, back. Uh, that's yeah. Go ahead. Uh, I don't know if the temple's destroyed quite yet. I mean, I don't uh, know when. So Jeremiah lived through the destruction of the temple. Mm-hmm. Does he know? I'm trying to think. He does talk about those who put their confidence in the temple of the Lord in chapter seven, I think. Yeah. Um, but. Um, is this a hint of the restoration of the temple? Because ooh, um, oh yeah. Well, priests priest oh. get priests live off of the sacrifices in the temple, the and so if thing. you don't have a temple, you don't have sacrifices. The whole thing is, Ken, if you want to take it that way, because this is a highly, this is a highly sort of liturgically laden passage. It's got a lot of key terminology from the worship life of Israel. 
right? The opening in verse seven, right out of the gate with seven, right? Sing aloud with gladness for Jacob. Shout among the, right? The proclaim, give praise. And even giving a, a specific uh, refrain here at the end of seven, right? Say, I want you to say this, yeah. Lord, save your people. And the whole notion of gathering has this, I mean, in some way, in some sense, I mean, now, now I'm getting crazy, but I, I won't say this is a original intent of the author, uh, not only because I, I tend to avoid worrying about that as much as yeah. you do anyway, uh, but, <laughs> huh. but also because I don't want to imply that this, is a, uh, that this was written hundreds of years later than, than uh, tradition holds. But you could see, so I, I want to think about early hearers, not first hearers, but early hearers of a text. I could see this being a text that could be experienced by post-exilic Israel as being reenacted every year when we, when we uh, pilgrimage back to the temple. I'm thinking of the Songs of Ascent, sure. uh, one of which makes an explicit reference to exile. This was the text on my heart um, today when, we, uh, uh, when I was preparing. I just happened to have been praying this psalm independently of prep for our time together. But, uh, and it fits so perfectly when we were reading the beginning, Psalm 126. When the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. Yeah. I mean, I could be a reference back to Exodus, but I don't think so. It seems to be a, a, yeah. a post-exilic experience. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting. See all the same, it's the same similar terminology. Then they said among the nations, I mean, this is really close. The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the desert or the streams in the south. Those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. I mean, this is spot on. He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Right, so that very shift, language, and it's. I haven't done a word study on all the terms, but I think they're pretty close to the same language here. Of the few that I looked up, real quick, some of the same Hebrew terminology being used in that in that psalm. Um, Now, which one's influencing which? I don't know. That's a probably an unsurprising question, but it's. um, I was I was thinking earlier how hard it is to rejoice with our grandchildren that aren't born yet, or um, (laughs) I mean, when the Lord's word is, yeah, Ken, you're going to, you're going to die, but your, your children Mm. are going to, I mean, there's a certain kind of um, (sighs) that's, that's, that's something. I mean, I'm, I'm really taken with the magnitude of that. I mean, think of those in the Holocaust, you know, who might have, who might've had a hope that God would, uh, if there were some, you know, as they, as they were headed for an Auschwitz or something like that, to have hope that God will restore Israel, even though they're not going to be rescued. Yeah. Um, that's, that's a feat for most of us, I think. Yeah. And that was the very first observation you made. And I think this would be a good transition. We won't, we don't need to stop for a break. Let's just press right into that. As we move to to preaching and teaching on a text like this. Um, again, I can see in the context of worship at some point, maybe 
drifting over to that psalm. Uh, yeah, that, that's really the only clever idea I brought to our conversation today. Otherwise, <laughs> I just want to see what you and I can come up with. But um, that uh, your initial observation that we've just we've delved into in a larger context, but I just want to come back to it is that the, the guy who wrote this poem under the inspiration of the Spirit knew he wasn't not only didn't see this, but we have every indication that he didn't expect to see it himself. Right? Again, especially if if chapter 29 was written prior to or at this uh, contemporaneous with a text like this, I mean, he, he's been telling the people this is going to take a generation and that's that, that has some significance for us. What does it mean to, to play the long game, to, to yeah. have a long view of, well, even the, of the, of joy and sorrow, you know, the Psalm of Ascent or the Psalm you read, um, mm-hmm. which one was it? One, 126. 126. I mean, contrast that with 137. So, so I yeah. mean, 126 is written after, after it's all over mm-hmm. and they're restored. Psalm 137 is written when they're in the middle of it. How, yeah, can, yeah. We, how can we sing the Lord's song when we're in a foreign land? Um, and Jeremiah 31 and 29, I think, call, call us to, to be able to see Psalm 126 when our situation is Psalm 137. Whew, that's good, um, Ken. That's, that's the whole sermon, man. <laughs> that's um, it, right? That... Which, which we can say nicely when we're sitting in our offices at Christian right. universities. But I mean, right. I mean, I don't, how do you, it's only the Lord's power, surely. Yeah. But but to take the time to validate, um, it's important because I think a lot of preaching about hope can be very flat and empty because it's saying, put on a happy face, things are going to get better. And to be able to, or it's this kind of eschatological gloom and doom, everything's going to get worse, then Jesus will rescue us, right? And to to avoid either of those extremes and really genuinely communicate to a congregation your suffering is real and it may persist longer than you wish. Our suffering as individuals and as a community and as a nation, this is going to go for a while. You know, this isn't a quick fix, but we're not just stabbing in the dark here, right? We, we are a part of a larger story um, that will be brought to, you know, its fulfillment. Uh, Salvation is cyclical. Yeah, well, I mean, and there linear. is that. It's both, right? I mean, that's what, uh, I mean, that's the message of Christmas and Easter in a way. Because, I mean, in a way, every winter, you know, every winter is a new event that's after the previous one and before the next one. But in another sense, it's the same event every year, right, of death and, and return. So there really is a kind of Christmas message here to be preached, but it could be done in a very indirect way that just comes around. And that's why I was mentioning the thought of even picturing the Israelites uh, singing Psalm 126 annually on pilgrimage, right? And reenacting the return from exile, right? Every time we come to the temple and, and then bringing that up for us. Uh, when we gather, you know, every Christmas doing the same dang thing, you know, for, for, for decades, right. Coming home, 
visiting family, open presence, these kinds of things. But there's this gathering, you know, of, of the scattered. I mean, that's a kind of yeah. natural imagery, right? Of the gathering of the scattered that takes place in a very mundane way amongst families during the holidays. Um, and not valorizing that, making that this big deal, but seeing it as a kind of small little parable of, of the reality of coming home that uh, is still only a parable of the, the great homecoming that awaits us all in the end. Yeah. And maybe this is too much, but even the Lord's day is a gathering from the week, from the scattering yeah. of the week. And, yeah. and to say, come with your weeping. And, not, we'll leave, and we'll leave the service rejoicing. Yeah. 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 No, I think there's a, uh, there's something, there's something really, really powerful there. And I mean, and honestly, part of it's, uh, and I mean, this is a hobby horse, so forgive me if I go off on a tangent here, but. I mean, we, we get it backwards a lot in the Christian life. Like we do just in modern life, you know, I, I actually, it's a, it's a perfect time uh, when you're preaching in, 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 you know, late December, early January. I mean, in the, you know, in classical Christian practice, you fast and then you feast, right? You weep and then you rejoice, right? Yeah. Advent, Christmas, Seven, 12 days of Christmas, not the countdown to Christmas. They're the 12 days of Christmas, starting on Christmas, right? And this, this, t- this text, if we follow the lectionary, would be during those 12 days. And, and to say, to contrast that with the modern practice of binge and purge, right? <laughs> eat, eat all. Advent is a time of eating, not fat, of fe- feasting on fasting. And then what do we do? New Year's resolutions. And in a way, this would be a kind of New Year's Sunday sermon. And this actually works really well as a New Year's text to kind of say, you know, what are the things that weigh on us? What is the weeping that's in our life? And what is the joy that we anticipate? Rather than just, oh, well, I had a lot of joy and now I need to weep to kind of make up for it, you know, as a kind of, that kind of gets it backwards, you know? Yeah. I don't know if that resonates, but. I'm also, you know, I I don't want to. I'm, I'm struck by verse 14 and uh, I will give the priest their fill of fatness because um, Jeremiah seven is so in, in just very hard on the temple. Yeah. Very yeah. hard. You know, you guys think that you're safe because this is the temple of the Lord. You know, you're not safe. Mm-hmm. Um, God, you know, this is as he, as um, Isaiah says, God doesn't dwell in buildings may, or uh, Stephen. Yeah, you know, heaven, heaven is his throne, um, and yet, and yet, there's hope for the priests. Um, the priests will be redeemed as well. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's the 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 vision, the scope of this redemption here in thirteen and fourteen, right? The virgins and the young men and the old, you know, the virgin will be in the dance, young men and old together, priests and people, both being satisfied. Yeah. Right. There's this kind of uh, uh, a kind of reconciliation taking place. Not that these are not that there's enmity necessarily, but um, there's a kind of there's a broadening of scope and inclusion of, you know, it's not just a a separating out of, well, the good guys and the bad guy. Right. The whole the whole the whole company of Israel, which then doubles back to the lame and the blind and the woman with in childbirth, right? It's like everyone is a part of this 
right? Is that yeah. Yeah. click or not? Okay. It clicks with me. Yeah. <clears throat> Priests and the people. Yeah. Even those who you thought might be left out <laughs> yeah. given their prior behavior. <laughs> what are you doing here? Yeah. 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 <laughs> I was just getting ready to ask you. <laughs> what are you doing here? Right. <laughs> yeah. What a vision. Well, it's an inspiring text. Thanks for taking the time to, to exegete into it. Any, any final thoughts before we uh, wrap up in terms of how you might go about preaching or teaching on a text like this? No pressure. I just thought I'd give you one last chance for a final word. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, I love, I love, of course, I love um, Isaiah 40 to 66 as well. Uh, I, I love, in Jeremiah, this is the chapter, the hopefulness <laughs> Um, how can we, how can we learn to live beyond what happens to me and Mm. be rejoice with those who rejoice, um, and to be happy for what God is doing in his overall mission and plan, not just with what he's doing with me, um, that getting beyond ourselves, that's, it's hard for me at least, but, but it's, there's hope for it. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, this is probably poorly timed to bring up, but back to the bits, bit about individuality, right? It's yeah. interesting that this text, this chapter as a whole, requires um, both a kind of the good news of being released from the responsibility of everyone else, you know, in that sense of that you're not going to be punished for everybody else. You know what I mean? This is, uh, while at the same time, the hope only makes sense if you think uh, communally, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Which is why this is not individualism, even though it's individuality, right? (laughs) Um, There is that individual responsibility. Um, I don't have to carry the burden of, of being punished for, you know, what everyone else is doing at the same time, there is no hope for me. Uh, if I make my hope all about me, right. My hope has got to yeah. be about something yeah. bigger yeah. than just me and the quality of my life. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, uh, Ken, for uh, giving an hour of your time to me and yeah. to all our listeners. Always a pleasure. Yeah. yeah. Great. To, great to be with you. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks to you and thanks to, uh, all our listeners, as always, and I'll say a quick thank you to uh, Eric Fisher and Todd Bouchong and the great production work they do. And uh, thanks to uh, Tom Adamson for donating the theme music and working on that end of things. And uh, yeah, be sure to uh, subscribe and share and rate and review and get the word out for what we're doing here. And uh, yeah, have a good preach and a great week. Bye bye. <laughs>